Um, stay with me tonight. <laughs> We're going from, from Genesis to Revelation. And um, sometimes I think we, we, we focus in on just one or two scriptures. And we kind of develop uh, uh, theologies and doctrines just based on this scripture here and this piece of scripture there. And uh, what's that? We can't see the forest for the trees. So I'm going to give you tonight the big picture. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. One is that God, the one true God, we would call Yahweh, um, that God, the one true God, Yahweh has a plan. And we can be assured that he will not fail in his plan. He will bring it to pass. He will bring it into being. When God created, he and he alone created all things. He created the visible, and guess what? He created the invisible. He created the physical, and he created the spiritual. Whether those things are thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, God created it all. In Colossians chapter one, verse 15 through 20, and this isn't my text, but my text is, I won't even get to till about halfway through. But in Colossians, Paul writes this, he says, talking about Jesus, he is the image important word image keep that word in mind he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. God has a plan. He has an end that he knows and sees. God in his creative powers created two realms. He created the spiritual realm and the physical realm. He created the seen realm of the physical and the unseen realm of the spiritual. And in his plan to create, he did something we might think was odd. He created a man. And he created this man in his own image. Remember that word image? I told you to keep in mind. 
We were created to image God and rule and reign in this realm that we would call earth. This image is not an ability that we have, but it is a status that we hold because as his image, we are now children or sons of God. Just as Jesus was the image of the invisible God, we too are the image of God. That is a status. Why are we the image of God? Because we are his sons and daughters. We are his children. First, uh, John chapter one, and I have a lot of verses. I don't know that I will hit them all, but John chapter one, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I think the King James says sons of God even to those who believe in his name. In 1 John chapter 3, let's look at verses uh, 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God or sons of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are sons of God. Galatians, I'm not gonna read it, Galatians and Ephesians, Galatians 4, 5. Susie, if, if I mention and you wanna put it up there, that's fine, I just probably won't go there. Uh, and Ephesians 1, 5 says that we have been adopted into this family, into God's family. We have been adopted into that family. And as part of God's family, we carry on the family business, okay? We're carrying on the family business in this realm, the earthly realm, and we are God's image bearers. Just as Christ was the image bearer of God, Jesus, we read that uh, earlier, but you see here also in, in John 14, nine, Jesus says, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. He was the image of the Father. We are image bearers of Christ. It should be said of us, if you see me, you see Christ because I bear his image. Not that I look physically like him, but I have the same status as he has as a son of God. And he has other principalities and powers that he has created, that God has created, and those carry on his business in the spiritual realm. Adam was created to be the imager of God. Unfortunately, Adam had a problem. He failed because, because he was created in the image of God, God gave him what we would call a free will that he could do as he pleases. He could choose to obey and follow God or he could choose to not obey and follow God. You see, God decrees the ends 
But the means to those ends, oftentimes he leaves up to humankind and the imagers of himself, of God. Therefore, it's important that we are sensitive to the spirit for our direction. That's why we listen to the spirit. So Adam rebels and is removed from the garden. God, uh, in Genesis 6, 1, it's, the scripture tells us that God sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what does he do? He brings about a flood and he destroys the earth, saves the family of Noah, his wife and his three boys and their wives. And then what's interesting is after the flood, God gives Noah a similar command that he gave Adam. So God told Adam, he said, uh, uh, be fruitful. And God blessed Adam and blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. That was Adam's charge to, to go into the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over it. Well, he tells Noah after the flood, he says, listen, uh, that I want you to be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. So Noah's sons obey that command to be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Genesis 10 records the families of the sons of Noah. And in 1032, it's recorded, these are the families of the sons of Noah. After their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Then the very next verse in, in chapter 11 of Genesis, we see Yahweh then again is displeased with the people of the earth as they have set out now to build a city and a tower that will reach the quote is, whose top reaches the heavens. And as a result of their actions, Yahweh came down and he scattered the people over the whole face of the earth. By this action of Yahweh saying, okay, I'm not gonna put up with you guys doing this. You're still not doing right. I am going to scatter you over all the face of the earth and I'm gonna confuse your language because at that time there was only one language. And by this action, Yahweh in effect decided that the people of the world's nation were no longer going to be in relationship with him. But God had a plan. God will begin anew now, again. He would enter into a covenant relationship with a new people that didn't even exist yet. And that people would be Israel. Then God moves upon Abraham and, and Israel to become his imagers. God viewed Israel as his son. He says in Exodus 4, and 23, and thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, talking about Pharaoh's son, 
even thy firstborn. Adam, the son of God, uh, Luke 3.38. If you throw that up there, I'll just, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of God. Israel, we just read it, was the son of God. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Psalm 2, 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today have I begotten you. The king of Israel is referred to as the son of God. Jesus, the ultimate king, is the son of God and will sit on the throne of David. First John, I'm sorry, John 1, 49. And she may have those up there before I can even turn to them, and that's fine. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then in Luke 1.32, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Jesus, the king, the son of God, the ultimate king and son of God will sit on the throne of David. Believers are sons of God and will sit on the throne with Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter, chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. So I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So this kind of brings us to the text of the message today, tonight. And it's found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. Just read these to you. And what got me going on this was uh, in our Bible reading a few days ago or last week, maybe it was, uh, we read this text. And, and so I really dug into it and tried to understand it better. Now, when Jesus came to, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it or will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So I came across this in our reading and I thought, I wanna, I wanna find out more about this. And, and I discovered that there is a, a, a lot of 
I don't want to say controversy, but a lot of discussion about this passage. And there's several interpretations of what this rock is and what the gates of hell are. And, and so as I, in my study, I started to uh, read about and look at this passage in the context of the ancient worldview of the writer. And I think when we do that, we get a clearer understanding of what Jesus is talking about. This discussion with his disciples and specifically Peter took place in a, in a place called Caesarea Philippi, formerly known as Panius. I think there's some slides up here. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is located in the northern part of the Old, Tester, Old Testament area region of Bashan. Now, some scholars believe that this geographical region should be identified with what, what they call serpent language. And the region of Bashan was the place of the serpent. And this is important. And it was located at the foot of Mount Hermon. This site was known in the ancient world as a cult center for the worship of the god Pan, P-A-N, and for, the temp, for a temple that was erected to the uh, high god Zeus, who was considered in Jesus's day to be the incarnate of Augustus Caesar. Modern excavations have revealed more than 20 pagan temple sites in and around Mount Hermon uh, they're, they're from, uh, from the Old Testament times and the New Testament times. Now in Joshua 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verses four and five, it tells us that King Og ruled over Mount Hermon. Now, I'm not gonna, this isn't a test, but on, on, in fact, I, that's what I was supposed to collect all the uh, uh, homework assignments from last week, Pastor Jeff. <laughs> this isn't a test, but King Og, who is King Og? He ruled over Mount Hermon. Well, King Og was one of the few remaining Rephraims, Rephraims who were part of the giant tribes, okay? And these tribes were left. Now, God had commanded Joshua and his armies to eradicate them, and they were working on it, but they just hadn't done it all yet. Michael Heiser, in his book, The Unseen Realm, notes this about Mount Hermon. He says, Hermon, that word, would have caught the attention of Israelite and Jewish readers. In Hebrew, it is pronounced Hermon. Or something. I can't speak Hebrew. The noun has the same root as a verb that is of central importance in Deuteronomy 3, and Deuteronomy 3 is the, is the conquest narrative of uh, going through the land. And that, that word is, uh, I can't pronounce it either, K-H-A-R-A-M, karam. They have the same root, one's a noun, one's a verb. That word karam, the verb, is to devote to destruction, to devote to destruction. He says that this is the distinct verb of holy war. 
Follow me here. The verb of extermination. It has deep theological meaning, a meaning explicitly connected to the giant clans God commanded Joshua and his armies to eradicate. So we come back to our text. Jesus is talking to them at this location. And there's been many popular interpretations of Matthew 16, 18 that have this rock as either referring to Peter as the rock. Uh, there's many that believe that, that Peter is the rock and he was the first Pope. And you know, and the, that's the, upon Peter and that was how the church was gonna be established. Or some believe, another popular belief in interpretation of this passage is that the statement that Peter made about Jesus as this rock, uh, or, or was, is this rock. What he said about Jesus, you are uh, the Christ, the son of the living God. And so some think, well, that is the rock or the foundation that the church would be built on. However, I would tell you that the, the phrase, this rock is not Peter, even though his name means Peter, or his name Peter means rock. Uh, and it may not even, I like the idea that Peter's statement upon this rock, uh, I'm sorry, Peter's statement that uh, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus saying, okay, that on this rock, that statement, that foundation of that statement is what I'm gonna build the church on. I like that, and I think that, you know, this is a possibility. But I wanna share with you another one that I discovered as I was researching this. Could it be that this rock refers to this mountain, Mount Hermon, as the place where Jesus will build his church? Well, you might ask, well, why, why would that be? Why, why is that? Well, because this place was ground zero for the gates of hell, the gateway to the realm of the dead in the Old Testament times. Looking back at the Old Testament, the serpent of Genesis was cursed to what? Crawl on his belly, right? This is imagery that conveys being cast down to the ground. The point is, is that the serpent, which the Hebrew word for serpent is nakash, the serpent who wanted to be most high will now be most low instead. Cast away from God to the earth and even under the earth. In the underworld, the Nakash is even lower than the beasts of the field. He is hidden from view and from life in God's world. His domain is death and he is the Lord of the dead, all because of his rebellion in Eden. In effect, Bashan, the region where Jesus is making this statement and having this conversation with the disciples was considered the location of the gates of hell. And we can, there are several reasons that we can come to that conclusion. One is the name Bashan means the place of the serpent. The serpent's place was where? To be cast down, to be made most low. The serpent became the Lord of the dead, Sheol. This region where Jesus is having this conversation was the cult center of and worship of Pan 
and other pagan gods. Modern excavations, as I said, have revealed 20 temple sites of pagan worship located in this region. So this is the backdrop for Jesus's discussion with his disciples and specifically with Peter. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon in the region of Bashan in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus's reply to Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I have often thought of this as, you know, whatever the world or whatever hell is doing to attack the church will be unsuccessful. And that's true. However, that's not what this means. Gates are a defensive structure. They are not an offensive weapon. God is the aggressor against the gates of hell. Are you getting this? It is the gates of hell that are under assault, not the church. It is the gates of hell that are under assault. Gates are defensive. They're cowering down behind the gates as God's army, his people, his church move forward and is the aggressor. The gates of hell will not hold up against the church, plain and simple. Hell will one day become Satan's tomb. Jesus makes this statement at ground zero, the gates of hell, to announce the reversal of eternal consequences. He makes the announcement at Mount Hermon, which remembers, remember, means to devote to destruction. That's what Hermon means, to devote to destruction. And what's going to be destroyed? The gates of hell are what's going to be destroyed. You see, Satan and his demons don't stand a chance against Christ's body in the church. It's the bottom line. He doesn't stand a chance. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the God, the aggressor, that's going to break them down and totally trash them. Christ's death and resurrection and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it triggered the empowerment of the church by the gifts of the Spirit. The church, the ecclesia, should be storming the gates of hell and bringing and ushering in the kingdom of God. That's, our, that's what we do. Everywhere the church, get this, everywhere the church is or everywhere a son of God is, you know what? That is holy ground. It's holy ground here today, here tonight. Jesus' defeat of Satan through the resurrection and his defeat of Satan in the wilderness temptation that he had was just the beginning of the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven. 
You know, it's interesting, immediately following this wilderness temptation that Jesus encountered, Jesus begins to call his first disciples. And almost the first thing that he does, I know we like to say the first miracle is changing the water into wine, but one of the first things that he does, and we can read this in Matthew 4, 17 through 25, and Luke 4, 31 through 5, 11, is that he casts a demon out of a man. And I found this shocking, but it may be hard to believe, but this is the first time in the entire Bible, this record, this record of Jesus casting this demon out of this man. It's the first time in the entire Bible that we read about a demon being cast out of a person. There's never recorded in the Old Testament a demon being cast out of a person. The defeat of demons immediately following Jesus's victory over Satan in the wilderness marks the beginning of the reestablishment of God's kingdom on earth. It's like Jesus saying, I'm kicking you out. There's a new sheriff in town and you're leaving. Jesus brings in, one of the first things he does, he brings in 12 men, 12 disciples, and he gives them power and authority over the demons. You ever thought, why 12? Why not 13? Why not 15? Why not six? Why 12? It's probably an obvious conclusion. How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. Reestablishing that. Then he sent out 70 disciples, right? And in fact, it's funny, when the, when the disciples came back, they said they returned with joy because, quote, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Why 70? Why 70? Well, 70 is the number of nations listed in Genesis 10 that were dispossessed at Babel, the disinheritance of the nations. There were 70 of them. God had a plan. He's bringing them back. Jesus' ministry is the beginning of the end for Satan and the gods of the nations. The great re reversal, not just revival, but the great reversal is underway. And we are a part of that. And that power and authority to cast out demons in the name of Jesus is extended to all believers and to the church. The gates of hell cannot withstand the assault of the church. They will fall. That is Jesus's promise. My question for you is simple. Are you ready to take on the gates of hell and reclaim the territory Satan has taken from you? I am. 